If Murray had supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> America's Blubbity Blah. The Blubbity Blah. Sending out good vibes. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America Show. Coming at you this week with the Ethical Skeptic. You know, we chatted with this guy on our other podcast, and I know our buddy Greg Carlwood um, had him on as well. But I got to say, I really think I haven't heard him uh, in a lot of places. So I'm really pretty, pretty happy with this one. It turned out great. And we got like a total of almost four hours chatting with this guy. Three and a half, three for sure. And it was just uh, just amazing to the point that now he's been, you know, the last show we did, he was watching. So, I mean, isn't that cool? We got everybody's favorite podcaster out on the West Coast still. Greasy Graham Dunlop working in that kitchen. I guess it's not really a kitchen, but it look, you yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a kitchen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, making greasy broth. Yeah, bone broth. Fresh it bone broth. Weight. It's it's helped me lose weight. Well, yeah, I mean, I am I am drinking a little bit of it too. Yeah, yeah, I am still losing weight. I'm still on my diet from New Year's, so that's a pretty long resolution. Almost at a month. Oh boy, we should have like uh, a Tim Boners, where it's like uh, where we just give out bone broth. Tom Boners, <laughs> like Tim Hortons, but it's drive through bone broth. Maybe get a little sugar and cream in there if you want. If they get a little salts, maybe some well, there's a garn. There's a special garnish that he makes as well for it. So you froze. That's weird. Yeah, yeah. There's a garnish that he makes as well. So really, yeah. That could be an extra fifty cents. This is like the whipped cream. Yeah, exactly. There you have it. So you're flying home tomorrow. Uh, yeah, Tuesday morning. So yeah, it'll be tomorrow from when this comes out. Yeah. That's yeah, I'm looking forward, forward to it. Getting back to the prairies, the cold yeah. prairies instead of the wet coast. It's been raining here for days. It's not the Sunshine Coast. It's the rain coast. It's supposed to rain here today. It looks blue sky out there right now, though. It's like plus 10, though. Yeah, this is a fantastic chat with the ethical skeptic. I mean, you know what's funny? We didn't get into I didn't. We didn't really have time to ask him, but he's had some strange experiences around standing stones in... Uh, was it Scotland or was it the UK? And I, and I meant to ask him about that a little bit or about the, uh, the pyramids and about sort of DNA. But, um, well, you know, we got into all kinds of stuff about his, his essay hidden in plain sight uh, regarding the massive flooding on the Giza plateau. I'd love to know what the, the brothers of the serpent and Ben think about, thinks about this, you know, it's really super fascinating. It is something else, isn't it? It's like, uh, it's a whole new thing. I mean, those guys are going off. I'm trying to see if I can sneak a chat in with the bros before they head off to Egypt again for like six weeks. Yeah, why didn't they come to us with their with their podcast about the uh, Gobekli Tepe and all that? 
We should have done that, but I, we were. I think we're all just so busy. Yeah, we should. We should have them on about that before they go for sure. Because I want them to look at look at this to see what they think. Because I saw some old pictures of the Nile, yeah, and the and the Giza Plateau. Have you seen these old pictures from? I mean, I hope they're not AI fakes or something, but they're from the 1800s. I think probably when pictures were developed or invented, but it the Nile was going right by there. And since then, it's it's uh, changed course quite a bit. Does that make sense? I think so. That probably makes sense. I mean, I, th I think it used to change course like all the time, didn't it? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Kind of like depending on I know, the way. I know it flooded nice and stuff. Back with your graphic, none of that shit happens anymore. With what? Like on the National Geographic. Remember, we used to watch it when I was a kid. And it was like the flood and the this and the that. And the Nile's going up and down. And it's causing all this stuff. When we were on the Nile, it didn't look like any of that shit was happening anywhere. I mean, yeah. it looked like we flew over a big chunk of it. Maybe it's happening there. But then we like floated up, you know what, a third of it? Maybe not a third. I don't know how long the Nile is. Uh, no, no, it was like probably a quarter of it, of the spot that's in Egypt at least, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, where were all the like crocodiles and now purge it was just like people in garbage yeah everywhere the garbage was on it's like all the garbage i saw in the 90s plus like 30 years or whatever how many every years it was since then <laughs> it's brutal maybe some of your garbage from the 90s was yeah it's still there it wasn't even yeah. cleaned up from then i mean unbelievable how the money doesn't get from that tourism to to the people and the villages that the people live in who gets the money you think I don't know. I mean, this is the big question. Who does get it? I mean, they put a lot into the new Egyptian museum, which is not even open yet. I mean, it was going to open when we were there. We thought I it might it be open. open now. I thought it was oh, open. Is it? Okay. It open. What's the what's the boss's name there? Gobi or uh, Zahi Hawass? Is that here? No, nah, he's the, like the antiquity antiquities. I, guy. Oh, you're talking about the main boss. So I, I'm, not yeah. sure. I'm not the, sure. The main boss. No, nah, the main boss. The capital. Probably not the main boss, but so I did want to mention too before I forget that we did we did an episode with Brandon Powell and Rick McCoy, who is DB Cooper's son on the other show on our Grimerica Outlawed. Um, just for people because we did have that original like really long episode on this feed uh, way back a uh, year a year and a few months ago when when we chatted with Rick for the first time that he opened up about being DB Cooper's son. So, um. Check that out. It's uh, it's really cool. It's just our latest uh, Grimerica Outlawed episode. And, of course, that episode with D.B. Cooper was episode uh, 577. Yeah. Right? Yep. I think that's right. If you want to check that out, um, go back to 577. We did Dan Grider in 569, sort of sets the stage, and then 577 with, with Rick and Brandon kind of laying out thing i mean we would get some pushback on that but i mean rick saying his dad basically said it you know i, I don't know i don't i attend I, I if i found out that that was bullshit i have it would floor me you know there's just there's none of my bullshit detectors go off in any way shape or form yeah exactly exactly yeah not even when he doesn't even seem to care about it or he doesn't want to no. be no you know he's not after we had to change the only reason he talked to us and we're the only people he's really talked to about it is because Brandon Powell just won't shut the fuck up about it. <laughs> <laughs> and he's our buddy. 
and with our body. So it's a funny world like that. Yeah. It's a funny old it's world. Funny. Uh, what else you got? Well, the we other got, point, uh, just the other point is he, he thinks it's hundred percent. Like he, there's no doubt in his mind. Like he's not like, Oh, it's, you know, this or that, but, but he is, he is now given the FBI some evidence, physical evidence, the parachute and the log books for them to look at. Like he's cooperating with the FBI basically now, because why not? They'll, they'll get what they want anyways, probably. So might as well cooperate at this point. And hopefully they'll, they'll come out and say, yeah, you know, it's uh, officially, officially closed now. The DNA has entered the uh, lexicon, I guess. We'll see what happens. Yeah. I'm excited. Uh, of course, there's our adult brain. If people want to check that out, we got, uh, did we add any new books? We do it. We have, we're, we're about to switch the books. So the new books, we'll be switching in just a day or two here. The three new books, we want to check that out over at adultbrain.ca or just search adultbrain audiobooks. Well, in the podcast player, I would love people to check out Caesar's column in there. Um, and it's also on Spotify too. So Spotify, if people have their already Spotify memberships, there's some audiobooks in there, but Caesar's column is a, is like a, it's kind of like a sci-fi kind of steampunk dystopia, utopia fiction by Ignatius Donnelly. It's about 10 hours. I mean, I'd really love to hear what people think of it. I, I loved reading it. It was a it's really interesting monologues with people talking about freedom and the government. It was like, it's basically like a revolution based, based in closer to our time, but it was written in the late 1800s. So he got a lot of things right about the future. I mean, he, he's got a whole thing on assisted suicide, like a whole uh, sort of a page on assisted suicide, uh, some really interesting technological things that came true. He basically called out TV screens and, and video screens. Um, yeah. Really interesting. I didn't uh, get into it yet, but it's a good one. It's well, now that it's on Spotify. You can now that it's on Spotify. I can. So that is big news for us guys. Spotify is getting more and more involved in audiobooks, which is good news for us. Because, uh, you know, we had the whole debacle with Amazon. We are back in business with Amazon, but not nearly on the level we were before and not exclusively. So Spotify, from my perspective, probably the best place to get those books. If you can get them there, you can get a subscription or however that works. I've never listened to a book on Spotify yet. I guess I should so I can figure out what's going on there. I am a Spotify premium member, so I could be listening to books right now. I'll check that one out first. I mean, I do get sick of listening to you. I'm not going to lie. But uh, but this will be different. Now that we're not you're not editing it or anything. You're not working. You just you're just like laying back, listening to my sweet sensual voice. Sensual now? Is that how you describe yourself? <laughs> sensual Graham Dunlop. Let's hear your sensual voice. It wasn't me. Somebody else called it that long time ago. Running with it, I like it. Yeah. I uh, I can get into it. I could listen to it. You know, and it's more like we used to work together all day in the day job too. So it's really. It's not that now we, I really only talk to you when we're podcasting. So, yeah, it's not so bad. I mean, we were talking before the show, guys, because if it wasn't for the audiobooks and the other podcasts we're doing and stuff like that, we'd be in real dire straits. The uh, the support for this, the Grand America show, has never been lower. I don't get it. Maybe nobody's listening or. Well, like I've been saying, it's also the attrition rate from Stripe. People people said Stripe has been canceling their their subscriptions. And PayPal, we know, does that already. So 
I mean, just keeping up with the attrition rate is is challenging enough these days. But I mean, we I haven't it. had a lot of negative feedback. I mean, we've always had positive feedback. So I'm I'm confident it's not just like the content slipping. I mean, we've had some great guests lately, like of course, JCD, John C. Dvork, John C. Dvork, as per the AI. It's not John C. It's John C. John C. C-H-A-U-N-C-E-Y. Chauncey. That's what? the only time I've ever seen this as you put it there. I was like, how did he mess this up? Only Graham. What? I don't Chauncey. understand what you're saying. Chauncey. Chauncey. No, it's, John, it's like John C. Like John C is one word. No, like it's John, Cha- like John no, C-H. Chauncey is what like the J-O-A-N-S-Y. way they... No. I, I just disagree with you. I think it's Chauncey. Why? That's not, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> you, have a, you, you were a man overboard for a while. I have some standing okay, in this. I, I heard the whole thing start. We're talking well, about the No Agenda show. because Let's John, hear from people what they think, if it's yeah, Chauncey yeah. or Johncey. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the actual way they're spelling it in the No Agenda chat, which I do spend a lot more time in than you, so maybe I have more standing, is uh, J-O-H-N-S-E-E. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I saw it as I saw it, and I agreed that it was C H A U N C E Y. Chauncey, you went. That's the metrosexual way. <laughs> that's, the, <laughs> that's the European spelling of it. <laughs> so, so what a great show! And we had some one-time donations too. We really appreciate it. That helped big time. Big time. So, you know, we were talking, John was giving us a bunch of pointers on maybe what we got to do to get this thing sort of rolling again. And uh, maybe that's it. So that's one of the things we decided we're going to start to is we'll start by rattling off the people who made some one-time donations, uh, some nice one-time donations for us after that show. And uh, and we'll kind of keep doing that. I don't know if we'll do all of them, but we'll do all the ones over any one-time donation ever moving forward over 50 bucks we'll read for sure and if you hey if you're on a monthly and you're like what the fuck man i've been donating to you guys for years you just email graham and uh let them know you've been listening for years and you've been supporting for years and you can still send it up yeah and we'll, but, and we'll yeah. shout out whoever wants yeah uh, email me at graham at grahamerica.com so uh, we've had the feedback for, for over the last year or so that you know um, that we'd get more donations if we acknowledge people. We can't acknowledge all of them because there's a bunch of people that donated a buck a month and two bucks a month. And we're very grateful for that, but we'd just be here like rattling off names and we haven't got permission to mention those names because we've never sort of done this before. I mean, even the names I'm going to mention right now, I only technically have permission to mention uh, one name. So I'm not going to do any last name. But I'm sure so, just first name is fine. I mean, unless it's like some unique name that no, yeah, it's yeah. fine. It's first name is fine. So first one from Nikki D, fifty bucks. Thanks, Nikki. Uh, we got another one for fifty bucks from Monica L. Of course, we met Monica before. I didn't know agenda meet out. She's a fellow Albertan. There's a, that's probably too much information, but that's okay <laughs> because. I already know that she's uh, she's, she's like cool. a game, so she's yeah. cool. Uh, we got from Lewis, twenty bucks. So thanks, Lewis. That that helps out. And then we got a uh, hundred bucks from Abraham, which is huge. That really helps out. And then we got like two hundred, two hundred, which is the biggest donation we got for this podcast. It's like a whole month's worth of Grand America donations usually. So 
Huge thanks to Trevor, who did send a note, and he said, uh, I felt inspired to support the show after that JCD episode. Sending out good vibes to all the Grimericans out there. Don't forget, this isn't a free show, and I have to say it makes more fun to listen when you know you are a supporter. Any amount counts. The more listens, the more listeners, the smaller the donations need to be. So help spread the good vibes. Don't be a fag. Donate to Grime. What? Donate to Grimerica, eh? Thanks, Trevor. And he also donated to No Agenda that same day. I don't I don't think he, I don't even and know if he knew. It might have, was it a coincidence or, I don't know, it might have been. And he shouted out Grimerica. I mean, I appreciate that. If people donate to No Agenda too, tell them Grimerica sent you, you know, they can, uh, that always helps the show too. And so. we have Adam coming back on, so. Like I say, send us some dough. We could use it. Support us at an all-time low for the show. It is not free. It's supposed to be value for value. So we're just going to keep making it in the hopes that we can right the ship and pick this thing back up. I mean, uh, you know, it's probably literally under a thousand dollars a month in support coming in for this show right now. So you guys could uh, make a one-time donation or sign up for a monthly or just keep plugging away. And uh, we'll read your notes. We'll do whatever it takes. You guys let us know. If you have some ideas on what you'd like to see us do with your donation or how you'd like to see us honor you or pat you on the back or whatever the fuck, uh, email Graham. Let him know. <laughs> support the show, though, guys. Grammarica.ca slash support. We got PayPal. We got Stripe. You might think you're supporting. You might not be. I literally get 100 emails a month from Stripe that says payment fail. And payment failed. And, pay- and after it fails so many times, it just automatically cancels. It doesn't have to be your fault, even. It's just weird glitches. Once you get into this many things going on, it's just like automatically shit's falling off because the you know the tech sucks. The AI isn't helping. Or or there's some weird algo that like takes, you know. I mean, I know PayPal I'm I don't trust that they aren't taking some stuff away on purpose from certain things. I mean, making it more difficult than it needs to be. I really don't trust that. I mean, we had problems with PayPal when, remember when PayPal said they were going to report all this stuff and then we lost a whole bunch of PayPal subscribers uh, just because of PayPal being douchebags. So. Yeah. And then there was a PayPal apocalypse. Yeah, that's that, that's uh, we lost about. like twenty five or thirty percent of support just in one morning while we were out of town, taking a huge financial risk on supporting oh. the TV Cooper episode. We were in the hotel room having breakfast, and it was just like canceled, 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 canceled. Anyway, I digress. Moving on, what do you got? What do you got? Well, I mean, we got Eclipse of the Canyon coming up as well. We do have to. Talk about that. Advertise that. It's April 6th to 9th, 2024. The full eclipse. You know, too bad Adam Curry uh, won't leave his property and protect his property to come and join us. But uh, that's okay. We understand. But this is in Utopia, Texas. We'll head down to his property and see him. No, we won't. Just kidding. And uh, there's going to be like guest speakers and music. So $50 Dynasty, Henry and the Invisibles, Mostly Dead, Sucka Please. And more bands and live presentations by Dave Matheson, Ben from Uncharted X, Russ and Alan Kyle. Sorry, Russ and Kyle Allen and Luke Caverns. Unpaved. Uh, Unpaved will be there. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be a gooder. My fingers still don't work, dude. What's it been like three months? 
It's oh. almost a month, three, 90 days. Oh, yeah. You do, I tell you, I broke, I sprained my thumb skiing when I was a kid, and it took a long time to get that movement back. Like years. So years. years yeah. That's but I wasn't work. I wasn't physioing it or working it out at all. It was, you know, it took, it'll, it'll, it'll heal. So this is like camping, like for a few days, this, this event, right? It's, um, family friendly. And uh, yeah, there'll be BYOB. Food. There'll be food and there'll be food trucks, fun and games. And lots of fun and games, lots of music, lots of maybe some experiments, maybe some civil war. <laughs> How close is it to the border? <laughs> no convoys allowed. <laughs> I think it's up north. A little way. Okay. Yeah. And maybe west too. Or east. I don't know what Texas looks like. But you won't we won't get caught up in any of that. Don't worry. Don't even think about that. Speaking of convoys, Trudeau got uh turns out that we weren't he wasn't allowed to arrest all those truckers and freeze their bank accounts. Not that it matters, but uh, what's done is done. But he's been found, uh, I don't know, what's the word? Asshole. <laughs> he won't go to jail or anything, but he wasn't no, nothing, allowed to I mean, nothing will happen, but who knows? It'll probably get appealed. I, I just don't trust the system at all. It's going to get appealed probably, and they'll end up being like, oh, yeah, it was, it was fine. It was right, but. At least, at least one judge was was willing to stand up and. Hopefully, they don't shoot him and push back. Yeah, Utopia seems pretty close to the border, actually. Is it? Yeah, it's a couple of counties away. So. Oh yeah, well, counties are big. It's no problem. No problem. There'll be no civil war. I'm sure it'll all be wrapped up by then anyway, you know? Yeah, hopefully. What do you think is going to happen? Or do you think it'll just keep ramping up right to the election? <laughs> I don't know, man. I really don't know. I, I'm afraid it's going to be another J6 type thing, you know? Some, all it takes is some digital agent provocateurs or real-life person agent provocateurs to cause a problem, reaction, and a solution, and then the media jumps on board and everybody... You then know. we go to the FEMA camps. And then we, uh, yeah, and then, yeah, who knows? I mean, this could be, I'm sure they're looking at how they're going to co-opt it already, right? I mean, I think it started out pretty organic maybe, but I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure we'll get it. I mean, that's the other thing we haven't mentioned. We do do that roundup all the time where we like, where we started talking about news and stuff on our other show. If you guys want to check that out over at Grimerick Outlawed. Sort of news-based stuff. We broke down that whole Freedom Convoy thing and a couple cool things like that. Something you want to check out. Maybe is it cold in Saskatchewan? It's supposed to rain here today. I'm not sure, actually. I haven't been paying attention because it's just been, you know, I've been here on the coast, so. It's supposed to be plus 10 all week and then uh, cold again, but it's starting to feel springy around here, dude. I seen a bee yesterday. Maybe uh, so, maybe I'm early because usually February is one of the worst months. I mean, January, February seem to be the peak winter. You know, of course, March can be bad, but it can also be good. Sort of, it's sort of variable. But February, I feel like February, you're in the heart of the winter. You know, 
Yeah, usually March is like snow, but not cold. And you get all those nice days where everything's melting. And then it freezes overnight and then melts and freezes, melts yeah, and freezes. Yeah, it's not yeah. minus 30 or minus 40. You're kind of through with that if you can get through February. Yeah. Maybe it'll be an early spring. It's been a while since we had a real early spring. I'd say probably like seven or eight years since it was, all the snow was gone by March. Well, the crazy thing is in Saskatchewan, they don't even really count on anything nice until May long weekend, I think, right? It's like... Well, that's here too. That's like the, the underlying rule is that you don't go camping before May long and you don't plant your crops before May long because it might be nice and it might be fun. You might plant your crops and all that. And, you know, there's a, a four and five chance it's going to be just fine. But, but then every once in a while May, it snows for a week or, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like a real gamble. I mean, if you go camping and it snows, it's not the end of the world. But if you plant your entire fucking crop for the year and then it goes down to minus 10 for a week, you're probably in trouble. Yeah. Anyway, you got anything else we got to get to? In the, no, I think that's about it. I just, I just got a sort of a bio that I used from the outlawed on for the, for the ethical skeptic. And I've got a quote from his website, which is fantastic. Do you want me to proceed with that? Yeah, you might as well proceed. That is one of the, this is a great chat, guys. It really is one of the one for the books. So yeah, spread it around. Tell your friends. It's a new Egypt theory. I haven't, I mean, I think I've kind of always, I've talked on this show about how I thought it was full of seeds and might have got flooded and blah blah blah. But I mean, he's he's showing actual evidence that I I don't think I've seen before. I might have just overlooked it. But we're pretty we're pretty like I'd like to think by this point I've heard most of the Egypt theories after a decade of doing the show. Yeah, and we have another episode coming up next week. I think it's going to be next week talking about some different Egypt stuff too about the scoop marks and the natron theory. So. That's, uh, we're just sort of carrying on this sort of ancient mysteries aspect these days. I forgot all about that. So the old heroes of skepticism died off in 2020 like the gods of Ragnarok in Norse mythology, or Kronos and the Titans from Greek mythology. In a matter of months, no one believed them any longer. <laughs> I think I read this a couple episodes ago, too. It's like a great, great, uh, great quote about the, the big S skeptics. So who is ethical skeptic? The ethical skeptic. No one of consequence. I'm a person who finds value not in status or celebrity, but rather in the quality of one's thoughts and positive impact on the world, whether large or small. Over the course of four decades, I've been at the forefront of engineering and scientific problem solving, building a thought leading and highly sought after professional capability. I believe that a person's worthiness is not defined by their CV, publications, or awards. Rather, true value resides in a genuine pursuit of knowledge, a focus on meaningful results, and a commitment to ethical principles. My academic journey has been diverse, encompassing graduate and undergraduate degrees in engineering, business, finance, and ethics from the top-ranked universities in the U.S. However, I don't claim to be a scientist or a philosopher. Instead, I take my pride in my ability to approach challenges with a unique perspective, drawing upon a multidisciplinary and deep background experience. As my favorite professor in standard model particle physics used to say, it's not simply the correctness of your answer I want you to express, rather demonstrate the rigor and quality of your thinking. Wow, that seems rare these days, eh? I mean, I wonder if they're still teaching that at university. The rigor and quality of our thinking has been sacrificed upon the altar of syndicated explanations masquerading as science. 
Never use skepticism as an excuse to dissuade anyone's life from expressing its full extraordinary potential, especially your own. And uh, his website is theethicalskeptic.com. He's got a great substack, theethicalskeptic.substack.com. And uh, yeah, check out this, his, uh, his essay is called Hidden in Plain Sight. There's a link in the show notes. There you have it, guys. Check it out. We hope you enjoy it. Like I say, I haven't seen this guy around anywhere, or at least too many places, other than not in audio form anyway. So maybe this is your first time. If it is, check out our other interview with him on Outlawed, which is all about the COVID crap and the skeptical approach to that. And uh, also on our buddy Greg Carlwood's show, The Higher Side Chats. I'll leave it at that, guys. Enjoy the chat with the ethical skeptic. skeptic welcome back thank um, you we're gonna be talking about your awesome article hidden in plain sight about the pyramids i mean this is interesting because we've been you know we've been talking about this on and off for years and it really seems to be time it's everything seems to be accelerating where the people are accepting um that there's something going on way farther back than we thought and you're coming up at it from a different angle with sort of fresh research well i appreciate that yeah it uh <laughs> As I state in the article, it is a not a a uh, praise or laudatory uh, comment on the industry that these two observations that I made are novel. They should have been made a long time ago by just normal, astute individuals. You don't have to have a, a PhD background in Egyptology or archaeology to come up with these ideas. Uh, just a little bit of industry expertise and and some imagination. These should have come up a long time ago. But uh, that's a testament to the intimidation, the coercion that goes on around this topic. And that's one of my missions is to dissolve that artificial constraint of science. And did you, have you been interested in the pyramids specifically in Egypt as well as all these other things you're fascinated by? Yeah. For a while? And, uh, for a while? Uh, to me, all of this points or all the roads lead back to, uh, to uh, a common source and that source source is the obfuscated and rather odd emergence of mankind uh, our story is unknown it has been squelched i don't know the specifics of that story but i do know obfuscation when i see it and that's what we live in we live in under the ignorance of that obfuscation the obfuscation is so stringent that it's almost to the level of panic on someone's part almost like a crime is being hidden. So the question is, I wanna know what this crime is. 
and I want to know the truth, that it doesn't matter what it is, it could end up being an absolutely nihilistic evolution as the uh, as the uh, total, you know, the 100% explanation. I don't have a problem with that, but I have a sneaky suspicion and a lot of evidence that that is indeed not the case. Well, why the why, why all the obfuscation? Why? Why do you think? Somebody is uh, rather terrified of, of what happened in our past, and I don't well, know why. Or terrified well, that we think, know about it. Like, well, I think there's a couple different reasons. A is that you could go the Randall Carlson route, and that's like this, that we're going to get smashed from space, and they're scared of that. But there's also the route that somebody took over the place, maybe a few hundred, maybe way sooner than may in our way more recent history than we think. Somebody like took over the plays and made us think things have come along differently than, than maybe we think. Cause I mean, who controls the past controls the present. I mean, there's, there's a lot to that saying, I mean, there, cause it's not, you got the pyramids, you got the Gobekli Tepe, you got the weird world's fair stuff. And I mean, I don't know how much you've looked in the Tartaria stuff. I'm not a Tartaria proponent, but there's something there, you know, you start looking at that stuff and it's like, well, why was Mussolini excavating Rome from 60, 80, 100 feet of, of dirt back right in the 30s? I mean, we don't have anything in our history books that allows Rome to be buried under 60 feet of sediment. I don't understand, you know, how that happens along the way. So I just started getting over the last couple of years and all these interviews. It seems like it might have been sooner than we think. You know, somebody could have taken over the place four or five hundred years ago when we went through that sort of mini dark age. And that could be a reason to, cause you're right. It does seem like, I mean, it's crazy not to just be like, okay, we got this one wrong. You know, it's like at this point, it's like, it's, it's weird. It's getting weird that they're not just folding on any of it. Well, if you look at it, we've only had the benefit of the Sumerian clay tablets, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi library, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi library found in two different locations. But in similar scenarios, buried in clay jars in a remote desert, uh, you know, in the, uh, I think the uh, Nag Hammadi was in Egypt and the, uh, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were, were at the Dead Sea in Israel. Israel. Um, but we have not had the benefit of those documents until recently. The Nag Hammadi was discovered, I believe, in 1946 or 45. And the scriptures that are in there tell a completely different story. Uh, in terms of the characters involved, the ontology, you know, in other words, the explanation for the nature of things, uh, tell a completely different story from Genesis, although they run parallel. The, the setting is the same, the characters are the same, but the good guy and the bad guy are reversed, and the causal nature of the story is also reversed between the Nag Hammadi scriptures and Genesis. That's an interesting and, that, and you can say, well, both are, you know, it's one word against another word. However, the Nag Hammadi was exterminated. And anytime something is exterminated or squelched or censored, that's what I want to look at. Because <laughs> there's usually a reason, especially if the entity doing the uh, squelching is in a panic state. They're trying to hide something. So especially after what we've seen. I mean, yeah. you might have told me, like, you know, even five years ago that that yeah no nah, it couldn't happen but then you go through covid and it's like oh yeah oh yeah they would you know because if it was a long time ago they would have probably just shot dudes like us 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, if they could have got away with it, what are they just like, no, 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 none of that. None of that shit. You know, I feel like we're honestly there. They just can't figure out a way to do it yet. You know what yeah. I mean? Without repercussions. Well, they they certainly have a unified press nowadays. And then they had this the this interesting group that I guess would equate to the priests of old. And that's this cult of fake skeptics that patrolled all discourse over the last 50, 70 years. Those though that cult lost enormous credibility during COVID. Their inability to uh, to describe what was happening, their inability to frame appropriate solutions, their inability to, from an objective and epistemological evidence based evidence based standpoint, defend the decisions of health authorities, they were inept. And guys like me ran circles around health authorities and the the so called academicians and PhDs and skeptics. They failed miserably, which is okay if we're talking about Bigfoot because nobody gets hurt. But when millions of people die from their incompetence, then I got to stand up and say, no, no more of this. What else are you wrong on? What else are you deceiving us on? Or what else are you basically clueless about? And that cluelessness is causing harm. I want to know. And that's, that's basically the reason behind the ethical skeptic. So you think that it's more about, it would be more about um, scare, our scary past versus us knowing about our scary past? Like, do you think it was whatever cataclysm must have happened? It's just, that's, it's, it's pretty bad. You know, if we're alone in this, this frontier of the galaxy and we are captive under a group that, uh, that is unaccountable, they wouldn't give a flip who knows what they just, they're in, they're in power. They don't care. Right. Right. Um, but if that group is under the watch of someone else yeah. they, and there's a penalty involved, that would be a state, that would be a condition which would induce panic in the group that would receive that penalty. That's the feel I get. It's not a belief. It's actually a placeholder. It's a construct or a theory or hypothesis. It's not mature enough to be called a scientific hypothesis yeah, or yeah. theory, um, but it is a construct, a placeholder. It's an avenue of investigation that has yet to even produce one falsifying piece of evidence. Every other consideration, nihilism, atheism, you know, creationism, uh, biblical creationism, 6,000 years, everything that I've considered that's on, the, on my plate, I've found direct falsifying evidence for, but not this construct. Right. So it grows each decade in its, in its confidence, even though I don't have abject proof. You know, I have to deduce it. What is the, the Sherlock Holmes statement? Uh, uh, I'll get it somewhere here. Uh, oh, yeah. When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. That was uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle through Sherlock Holmes in his second publication, The Sign of Four. That's the process of deduction. That's your first choice of inference or, or the method of inference as a first choice that you should undertake. Unfortunately, most of science undertakes induction, which is suggestive, especially linear induction, which is connecting the dots. Not that that's useless, but it, it can lead to wrong answers most of the time if you're not reinforcing that analysis with, with challenges from other arenas or other viewpoints or bringing alongside deductive information to help hone and refine that inductive conjecture. 
And so right now, most of our conforming and conventional understanding is, uh, understandings of mankind's origin, they're all inductive. They're, they're to a degree half, they've got a foot in the pseudoscientific world, in addition to the objective and scientific realm. But we don't practice deduction. We don't practice this Holmesian philosophy of how to get at the truth. We don't prosecute what I call the critical path of uh, a reduction around a question, a series of appropriate salient questions that help you resolve a complex issue. And then what happens is the, whatever evidence is found, it doesn't shift the, you know, they, they just say that right. can't be true because the paradigm says it should be this. So instead of evidence adjusting the paradigm, the paradigm sticks and the evidence just gets thrown in a little bucket. Correct. Right. Yeah. Yep. So how does how does your 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 pyramid thing fit into this? I mean, I'm I can't wait to sort of connect it to some of the other stuff that we've talked about on Egypt. But should I put it up on the screen? Yeah, yeah, you can share it. Sure, if you want. Yeah, get it up here. Sorry, it's. Uh, uh, and how, I'd I'd be interested in how that sort of part of it started. I mean, how did you did the Egypt thing? Was it when you went there? Did you have reservations before you got there? Because. I had reservations about Egypt. I mean, I don't know what it was, but there was aliens or this or that or the other before I went there. And then after I went there, I kind of changed it around. You know, I still don't know what what happened, but I left there thinking, well, this thing's some sort of machine of some kind. It sure seems like to me. It doesn't seem like people were meant to be crawling around in here. It doesn't seem like anyone was buried in here. It seems like it was made awful precise for reasons. Yeah. I, there, there is it is the screen sharing. Yeah, it's right there. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that uh, there were two things that really launched me on this. Number one is this image right here. When I went up with the driver and my escort, he was there to make sure that I didn't get accosted by the hundreds of people looking to give you camel rides or or hundred dollar tours of the pyramid. <laughs> um, I looked at the uh, the wear pattern on this cap and. And of course, I was told by by one of the uh, guides that was within earshot that that these stones had been harvested or or pulled off or scavenged. That's the be the best word there. They had been scavenged by locals over the thousand years, two thousand years, or actually uh, forty five hundred years under the narrative explanation, and were used in other structures. So I asked the driver. I said, "Well." <laughs> I don't know. This doesn't look like scavenging to me. <laughs> and I, I didn't really, uh, you know, have a notion as to what it was. It just didn't look like scavenging. And he said, well, I, they've never really found these so-called reused stones anywhere. Number one. And number two, I mean, there, there are none around the base for the most part, a couple scattered here and there of the Tura, what are called the Tura casing stones, technically. And then finally he said, why did he, he said, you know, uh, Mr. G, why did they stop at that cap up there? And I looked at it, and it's when I saw this on the upper right image here, that is an undercutting erosion. That is not scavenging. <laughs> that is not weathering. That is not, uh, you know, the atmosphere or the sand or the rain or the sun. That is undercutting from a particular action of seawater called karst morphology. And it, it is a morphology that happens through the calcium, uh, the, uh, get the name of the uh, carbolic acid, yeah, carbol carbolic acid process of seawater on limestone in particular. And of course the pyramids are made of limestone. They're made of two types of limestone. 
Uh, Makatum limestone is the limestone, the load-bearing limestone that makes up the body of the pyramid. However, Tura limestone, a much softer, and we talked about the Mohs scale of hardness uh, that we used in my labs uh, you know, years ago. Uh, we employed as a measure in my material, advanced material labs years ago. The Mohs scale for Tura limestone, which is these, these external casing stones, is about four out of 10, which is, as stones go, is rather soft, actually. Uh, you know, it's, it's not something you break with your hand, but it's, it's getting there. Uh, Makatum limestone, on the other hand, is most scale seven out of 10. It's more equates to andesite or these extraordinary pots or the structures at Pumapunku that were, that were, that have to be machine made. Because once you surpass that most level five, you've got to have some type of advantage, mechanical advantage and grinding advantage in order to, to compromise the hardness of that Mohs structure. So when we're looking at a Mohs 7, this, this, these stones down here at the bottom, the structural, the load-bearing portions of the pyramid, you know, those aren't going to dissolve very quickly. But if you look at the casing stones, these Mohs level 4 hardness stones, and you, you present them in seawater that is actually running at a sea state of 8, which is a very chaotic and dangerous sea state. And I've been in a sea state 8 in a ship. It's no fun. It's actually terrifying. If you if you have a sea state of eight pounding against Tura limestone and enacting very vigorously the carbolic acid process that happens between seawater and limestone, you're going to get a dissolution, a dissolving of this Tura limestone casing. And that's what hit me when I was standing there and Daisy the camel came by and the and the the rider on the camel said, sir, would you like to ride Daisy the camel? I looked Daisy in the eye and I said, Daisy, I'm not here to ride camels today. I'm sorry, sweetheart. <laughs> Daisy looked up and away and started walking off. But <laughs> once you get past all that, the notion hit me right then and there. And you can see it in this image right here. So so don't this, people don't people say that some of the casing stones were put into the new modern modern temples in, in Cairo and, and the some of those white temples? I, yes, that is what I was told specifically on site and that I had heard from Egyptologists. But you're looking at a lot of stones here, right. yeah, yeah, nothing yeah. really around the base remaining. And a lot of the stones partially dissolved in this structure. If you look at the structure here, we've got three components. You, this is the Khufu, or excuse me, the Khafre pyramid. This is the, the higher, not the taller, but the higher of the two largest pyramids of, of Giza. You've got three components here. You have a ragtag karst uh, eroded uh, section that makes up the majority of the pyramid surface here down on the bottom. This is remaining Tura limestone. So not so they actually aren't gone. They're actually partially eroded. Then you have an erosion band or this, this, uh, this completely Tura devoid uh, erosion band, which exposes the most seven Makatum limestone underneath a much harder form of limestone and also a lighter color here, as you can see. Then finally, you have the intact weathered, which is distinct from eroded, uh, Tura limestone that makes up the cap. But what's significant here to me is both the undercutting that occurred in this erosion pattern, as well as the parabolic uplift of the erosion right at these 90 degree turns oh, or what's yeah, called yeah. seawall. That's seawall erosion. 
Because it's going to erode harder on the angle, right? It's going to erode faster and harder on the angle than on the flat part. Waves are going to rise higher, contain more kinetic energy, and dissolve in a parabolic form the the Tura limestone that exists right on these seawall edges right here. And I've seen this in ports and, and harbors that I've been in. I've been an officer of the deck in the Navy and sailed for decades. I know what I'm looking at. And archaeologists don't. I'm just sorry to say this. They aren't they aren't qualified in materials. They aren't qualified in engineering and structures. And they aren't qualified on the carbolic acid equation. Then they aren't qualified on the action of ocean water on different structures. But I am. I know what I'm looking at here. And that's not meant arrogantly. But what I see here is a high water mark, a, a mean high water level of ocean water, not any other type of water. This is not rain. This is an ocean flood that rose to 572 feet, I think it is, uh, is uh, 576 feet above sea level, which is substantial. Yeah, yeah. Randall talks about the Younger Dryas being 400, I think, 400 feet above. So was a net that, was a net differential change. That was a permanent change. However, this was right. this was temporary. But right. yeah, absolutely. So does yeah, but still, during uh, that, sorry, but during a. Uh, to get a 400 foot permanent change, I mean, you got to have some spots that are going to hit 560, right? Or whatever it is, you know, like you'd feel like it'd be like when, when I like dump a five gallon pail of water in my bathtub. I mean, the shit goes nuts for a minute and then it levels off a little bit deeper. Well, the thing about this is that uh, the, there's a differential amount of time here. You've got the high water mark where we've eroded the Tura limestone down to the Makatam limestone completely. And then we have this band of really uniform partial erosion. So when we look at this, this equates to a normal or the tail of a normal curve. Basically, you've got what's called the X mode or the mode of the distribution X mode if it's a continuous function you know, on a graph. If you're a systems engineer, the X mode or the peak of the graph is the high water mark here. The water sat at this level for some period of time and exhibited anywhere from a three to sea state of three to eight on a scale of 10 that entire time. So the seas were agitated. They were very furious, if you will, during this, this period of time. But they sat there at this 576 foot above sea level point for a while. Then they backed off and progressed almost linearly down and retreated back to current sea level. And during that time, they partial the oceans partially eroded the Tura limestone that you see here on the majority of the Khafre pyramid. So this tells me that we hit a stability point, sat there for a while, and then backed off that stability point and returned back to, and I put this in quotes, returned back to normal, whatever normal is, assuming that what we're experiencing now is indeed normal. This is very machine-like. The Younger Dryas period, what we had was a severe alteration in climate, and we converted uh, polar ice caps, which were rather substantial at the time, into ocean water. And that substantiated a 400-foot permanent rise in the ocean. In this case, we had a 576-foot temporary rise in the ocean, but it exhibited a mechanical, machine-like behavior. And that wouldn't happen if we had, say, a, a, a planetoid come swinging by the planet and, you know, uh, impart gravitational pull on the oceans, or, or if we had, uh, say, a plate tectonic shift that was substantial enough to create a 576 foot rise in the oceans, those wouldn't be, those wouldn't be mechanical, and they wouldn't be temporary. They would be chaotic 
and uh, and permanently altering, much like the Younger Dryas effect in, it, in its net effect. What this was, was something that induced a rise in the oceans and then smoothly backed off to where they used to reside once again. I wonder if it smoothly backed off or is there, is there recession lines like you would see in a valley that uh, Younger Dryas, because even though it, it recedes sort of, it's almost like lines on a bathtub, you know, it would recede. Yeah. You would think it would all go out, but it actually does. And it kind of slowly go, goes out in little chunks. I wonder if you could see recession lines on the pyramid. Absolutely. In fact, I spent years off and on years, not years contiguous or continuous in Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I was doing a, a strategy for the, for the kingdom of Saudi Arabia at the time. And I spent, and this strategy required me to travel to all the, the different, the four quadrants, if you will, of, of Saudi Arabia. I spent a little bit of time in what they call the empty quarter <laughs> and yeah, and flew over it. The, Dubai is, you know, here at the, at the bottom end of the Persian or Arabian Gulf, as they call it. Uh, and I flew puddle jumpers from Dubai to Riyadh many, many times. And during those flights, you can see those bathtub rings, those oh, shorelines. As, and I tried to count them. And I got easily over 250, 400, you know, as I counted these these ancient shorelines, they all receded back toward the Persian Gulf. In fact, the Persian Gulf is the flood. It's just the remnant of the flood. It's only about, and I did a lot of, you know, I did a lot of sailing in the Persian Gulf. You can't really get, you know, an, an, an SSN submarine in there and keep it safe. Uh, you know, you're in danger of running aground almost everywhere you go. It's not a deep ocean by any means. If you get 300 feet of depth in the Persian Gulf, you're in the deep, the deep blue sea of wow. the Persian Gulf. It's a, well, it's a very well, shallow. Um, you can even see it on your map there, how that's all that same shade of blue. And then if you go to the right, it sort of drops down quite a bit absolutely. there in elevation. Yeah. You can almost see where a few beaches have been sort of going back too, right? Yeah. Right almost from the middle, going right back towards the Persian Gulf and probably exactly. coming up from the left side as well. Exactly right. In fact, if you look here, you see this baby aspirin or orange colored deposition here. I, I went and inquired at the museum at uh, Dimam or, or Riyadh, one of the two, I can't remember, as to what this was. And they said, well, it's iron oxide particles. It's extremely fine iron that was dissolved and uh, deposited by the winds. Uh, I'm looking at this and I'm like, no, uh -uh, this is not de wind deposition here. This is fluid deposition. In fact, this iron oxide was deposited at the peak of this flood. And you can see the flood washway right here in the Saudi empty quarter. And it, it leaves a saline flat here up toward Qatar and, uh, and Bahrain and the Persian Gulf, and then leaves a desert washway all the way up to the high water mark where this iron ox these iron oxide fine particle particulate depositions are. That shows clearly the earmarks of this flood. And it's plain as day. You can see the flood marks. You can see the bathtub rings, as we're adeptly calling it here, retreating back to the Persian Gulf. So this flood surged up quickly with a lot of mantle-like material in it and then receded, I think, over eh, maybe up to 10,000 years back to its current state of the Persian Gulf. So the, I mean, the Nile floods all the time. That whole, that whole valley and the delta and all that. Do what? What? What are you thinking for timelines then on this? I mean, yeah, is there, I, is, there is there an acknowledged flood in the mainstream sort of? No, not no? at this 
magnitude. I mean, you, you take a look at here. I marked uh, 575 feet, which is the height of this high water mark, five, 576 feet, and showed it in relation to the Saudi empty quarter. As you can see here, comparing it to the composite Google Earth photos, you can see we're right down in here. You can see that the the high water mark on the pyramid is well within the flood footprint of this Saudi tectonic plate flood that we're viewing here in the in the Google Earth composite. So there's no doubt that there is there has been a flood, but I believe that if that flood occurred under the narrative, that means inside the last 4,500 years, we would have myriad more than just Utanapishtim um, and Noah and uh, the third character in the uh, Sumerian who had a flood as well. I forget his name, but uh, we would have more than just those ancient uh, tales. We would have many records of a flood that occurred in uh, relatively you know, m modernity uh, the last 4,500 years. I don't think this flood occurred within the last 4,500 years, and that casts falsifying uh, Holmesian deductive doubt on the narrative about Khufu and Khafre building these pyramids. Right, right, right. Well, and not only that, if you head not too far south of that, I think like if you get like the uh, west coast, the east coast of Madagascar, and and just south of where you're showing on the African coast, there, I think there's a bunch of drumlins as well. You know, I think yeah. some you know which could be from the same thing, I guess, right? Yeah. I, it, it looks like the oceans just basically became chaotic for a period of time that commensurate with that was a sizable amount of subsea uh, eruptions. That's the source of this, this iron oxide, these fine iron oxide particulates it has to do with volcanic activity. It could be the explosion and disintegration of a meteor because meteors are typically, you know, if they're asteroids, uh, you know, solar system meteors, they're going to be anywhere from you know 80 to 90 percent iron and the rest be nickel for the most part that's a possibility but the consistency of these iron oxide particles and then the, the pattern of disruption of the oceans out of their beds that left these iron oxide earmarks suggests to me something that was global simultaneous rose to about a surge of maybe 1500 to 2200 feet that's where these orange bands are they're at about 2200 feet and then, then went back down and sat at 576 feet for a while and then retreated back to the current context. There's only one thing, I don't like this answer, but there's only one thing that could cause that. It can't be caused by an interloping planet sweeping through the solar system because then our orbits would all be in disarray. Uh, we would see that in the orbits of our, of our planets. And can, I, can, I, can I guess? Yeah, guess. Uh, pole shift? I, the geographic pole shift absolutely <laughs> as opposed to a mathematical magnetic pole shift which is oh. a different, different thing altogether the only thing that would cause the oceans to do this would be a geographic pole shift in fact if you look at it if you take the difference between the highest ocean and the lowest ocean on earth and earth is not a uh, a perfect sphere it's forget the name of it it's like a quashed it's like a shape of a tomato and there's a there's a there's a shape name for that I forget spheroid yeah, it's spheroid, but there's a some type of prefix yeah. to that. Yeah, yeah. Either way, it's it's shaped like a tomato. It's quashed. And it's the like elongated. It it is. It is uh, at the equator. The difference between the highest oceans and the lowest oceans is about 690 feet. 
I find that curious that this 576 feet of stability is well within the feasibility range of the highest to lowest ocean differential. So that means that, you know, if the earth tilted on its axis, ostensibly we could have an ex a possible explanation as to why the, the uh, sea level would have been 576 feet higher at the Giza Plateau for a period of time. And then it retreated back to, again, quote, normal. Re retreated or pull shifted back again? I mean, it would, did it Always take a cataclysm? It would be the same thing, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So, you're, where so, we, yeah. so if that's the case, then you're, you're putting this thing back to, to like 30,000 years ago, something like that, like 30, 40,000. I mean, it, it could be. be. Yeah. It could be. But I yeah. think with within the context of uh, even man's prehistory activities, let's say Malta, Gobekli Tepe, Karahan Tepe, the Giza Plateau, if you argue a you know an older age for the Giza Plateau, if you keep that context as as sound enough, saying that men built the pyramid, and I think the pyramid was built by men, um, I think we're looking at the last ten thousand years, and especially as I look at these receding shorelines and the Saudi empty quarter, I think we're looking at the context of ten thousand years or less, um, maybe even fifty five hundred BCE as one purported. Well, that's the, the number that they put for the Indian Ocean impact. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's a possibility here. It's a possibility as well that we had multiple floods and and that this is not the, the biblical deluge here, that this is another flood. I suspect this is the biblical deluge because of the the uh, you know the the different writings, especially the epic of Gilgamesh, where Gilgamesh finds Utanapishtim, which is the Sumerian Noah, and Utanapishtim explains what happened. It fits this flood very well. It's not a global inundation where, you know, Mount Everest is 150 feet below the, the water. That didn't happen. That There's no way that happened. Uh, this, this flood was contained. I wouldn't call it regional, but it was contained in its elevation. If you look at the biblical story and you read the, the number of days involved in the actual Genesis account, what you find is that there are only 43 days between that elapsed between when the highest mountain peaks first emerged from the ocean and the dove returned with an olive leaf in its mouth, which is impossible because an olive leaf takes seven months to do what is called an agricultural come true. That's where we get the, the uh, expression come true. If a, if a pit is going to grow into a tree or come true, it's got to sprout its first series of leaves, not just one leaf, but it's got to have a branching and a series of leaves, and that's called coming true. In order for, for this dove to return with olive debris, olive leaf debris in its mouth, this, this olive tree that it lighted upon and ate would have had to exist at least seven months. So within the details of the story uh, is a thing called, a principle called autoaphaben. It means self-falsifying. They gave too much detail in the story of Noah, and it falsified its main uh, theme, if you will, that God was punishing man and there was a flood worldwide. There was a flood, but that, but the back, the the overstory that was put on top of it was falsified by the very details of the story itself. Wow, there wasn't sufficient time for an olive tree to grow if the whole world had been inundated in that flood. However. If the flood rose to 2,200 feet, then olive trees would have survived. And I find it curious that today there are no natural olive trees below 
2,200 feet in the Middle East. <laughs> so, so it went back though. So we're not talking about something like, because you can start going into, I mean, well, I don't want to get too off the rails here, but we talked to RKX and he talks about, well, maybe there used to be some weird vapor barrier thing and that's how dinosaurs existed and blah, blah, blah. I don't want to get into to all that. I, I'm not even sure where I'm going with that, but could it, so it couldn't have been that that's like when we got the, the angle that we've got now because it went back or could it be an overcorrection that, or here's a question. I mean, could it be, could it have been a, um, a consequence of the younger Dryas? I, uh, I have not, I've leaned against that in particular because of the chaotic nature of our core. And uh, I think you've probably seen that article. Um, we have structures inside the mantle of the earth called LLVPs and, and, uh, Oh, goodness, uh, LLVCs. They're low velocity, very, um, if you will, dense areas of our mantle that have basically sloughed off the core. And what it suggests is, is that there's an interplay between the mass that makes up the core of the Earth versus the mass that makes up the outer rotational body of the Earth. And that there, that, that mass is, is handed back and forth as a cyclical system over time. And most of the time spends, you know, it spins in equilibrium. Right now, I theorize that we are in a condition where the hexagonal close pack, and again, I, I managed a materials lab where we dealt with such materials. Titanium is HCP, hexagonal close pack, for instance. The hexagonal close pack core of our earth, which is mainly nickel iron, but heavily, heavily iron, they call it knifey, the two symbols for nickel and iron. Um, that, that material sloughs off the core and is handed to the mantle and increases the mass of the mantle and slows down or alters the speed of rotation of the earth. And we track that fairly precisely now. My conjecture here is, it's not proven, but it is conjecture, is that when we pass too much material to the outer rotation portion of the Earth's body, it gains instability and begins to wobble around like a top. After you touch a top, a top will spin perfectly. You stick your finger on it and touch it with just a little nudge. It goes berserk. And then it comes back into its equilibrium of rotation. Wow. Again. Which might be different. So that's what I'm thinking is a possibility here. Again, it's not proven. However, there's enough uh, evidence here to suggest plurality under Occam's razor for those who are efficient. Well, not only that, I mean, very, very clearly, um, um, oh, I forget where I was going with that, but it's like, uh, I, I got this article here I want to pull up. Yeah. I'm going to pull up this one. Let me see if I can get my screen, because we went to in Karnak. The Temple yeah, of the Western Rising Sun. Yeah. So it, this thing says here that Egyptian, Egyptian priest told Herodotus, a careful listener, that four times since Egypt had become a kingdom, the sun rose contrary to his wont. Twice yes. he rose where he now sets, and twice yes. he sets where he now rises. Correct. This is an account of Egypt. There are three books that Herodotus wrote in 440 BCE. 
Um, the uh, there's some fanciful tales in there. Uh, he talks about you know a, a group that trekked across the desert and went into uh, I guess the uh, the uh, the Congo, uh, they were Egyptian explorers, interesting story. But that quip right there is of enormous significance. It's been dismissed throughout, uh, you know, history and archaeology. However, I think it bears credence under this, under this hypothesis. And that now I remember what I was going to say. I mean, it's very clear that there's something going on down in Antarctica, right? Like that, that shit probably seems like that was habitable at one time. So, yeah you know that sort of lens to that and you've got the perfect picture up on your screen right now so i can't help but bring this up because i'm sure you've looked into it i mean we we had the late neil uh what's his last name graham the comic guy neil adams i think neil adams he went a little woke at the end but actually was the trump the trump derangement syndrome that got him that took down a lot of good people though um anyway we had him on the show to talk about the growing earth. And honestly, when we had him on the show, when we were starting out, I was like, this is fucking nuts. The growing earth is crazy. <laughs> we had him on the show and he's showing these animations and he's showing all these pictures and he starts talking about this pear production thing. <laughs> and when I look at this picture of, um, I don't, is that the red sea I'm looking at? The red sea in the center, the Arabian or Persian Gulf to the upper right and the Indian ocean to the bottom right. And of course the med to the upper left. So it sure looks like that red sea, like, you know, one half of it could have just came right off of the other, doesn't it? Yeah. In fact, what you're identifying there is called the, the Arabian uh, tectonic plate. It runs up, it runs right on that zipper line, right down the middle of the red sea. It's the cause of this, this split between the, uh, the Gulf of uh, Suez and the uh, goodness, remember the, what the other Gulf is there, but where Dahab is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the, the cause of the Sinai Peninsula and this this ribbon of volcanic rift right here that goes right down the Red Sea, and I've sailed that as well. That's an interesting, <laughs> rather odd portion of the world, and causes this this rifting that is out um, and subduction that is out here in the Indian Ocean circles around over here toward uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan and then back up through the Persian Gulf. And it's a, the reason for the Persian Gulf's existence. And then become its subduction becomes the, the mountains here, the, what are called in the Bible, the mountains of Susa, uh, that the subduction of the Arabian plate forces these mountains in Iran to appear. So this plate right here does have the ability, in theory, to sink down but the thing is that we see the trappings of this washway, you know, all through North Africa. The Rishat structure that's proposed as, as ostensibly the location of Atlantis was destroyed by a flood. It didn't say that it went under the ocean and just sat there. It said it was destroyed by a flood. That Rishat structure is absolutely pulverized by a flood that transited North Africa. I think that's it's the same flood. It, that, that flood bears these same orange, you know, um, iron oxide particulates in it. I think it's the same flood. I can agree with that. The reason I was talking about that growing earth thing is, I mean, he's seen the same thing with Africa and it all looks like it could have ripped apart because the Pangea thing, I mean, maybe that's it. He had something about like the, the, or the stuff at the bottom of the ocean is sort part of the newest part of earth's Earth's crust. But the pear production thing is what turned me on because he was, it was like the earth was constantly creating matter. And that was kind of what was going on in my head. I was like, well, if that's happening Where's it going? And it has to get like lopsided once in a while. And so if it if it shifted, it could theoretically it would 
you'd get that wobble, but it wouldn't go back to exactly where it was before. You'd have some slight changes, right? Like maybe Antarctica shifts by 20 or 30 degrees or depending on where your new, wherever your matter comes from, whether it's coming from the mantle or, you know, either way it's causing the crust to shift. It's wobbling like a top. Is it going right back to where it was before? Or is it it like a new shape? Because when you have a top, all you've got basically is gravity and then the or, or the rotational momentum of the top itself. In this case, we have a, another factor that is introduced when we're talking about celestial orbits, and that is the uh, the um, electro uh, electromagnetic effect, if you will. I'm trying to put the right title on it. What we've got is when when the Earth's core releases this material, sloughs this material into the mantle, it loses what's called its magnetic permeability. That means that the lattice, this lockstep, beautiful crystal lattice, which makes up the Earth's core, it, begin, it begins to get uh, chaotic, begins to dissolve. And the per- magnetic permeability of the core gets less and less such that we begin to lose the integrity of the Earth's magnetic field. And indeed, that's what we see what is, is happening. We've had the Earth's magnetic field drop by 75% and then take off out of northern Canada into Russia. <laughs> People, you know, in Twitter saying, or X saying, that Russia's stealing their, the North Pole as well. <laughs> the, the, the North Pole has weakened and wandered, and that's an indicator that the magnetic permeability of Earth's core has reduced substantially. That's what gives me concern that we are contributing mass to the outer rotational, you know, portion of the, of the Earth, and that that outer rotational portion, portion could hit a tipping point literally and start tipping that's my that's my concern under this construct here however if the core reversed under its normal cyclical nature the magnetic permeability would snap back into power in other words in a very short time the north pole would become highly magnetized again undertake its former north south orientation it's offset by 24.2 degrees versus the ecliptic of the sun but it would still undertake that that alignment and would force really all these iron magnetic components of the earth and it's you know majority iron so it's magnetic would force them back into compliance in other words there's a possibility that earth would return to its previous rotational state unlike a spinning top and it, and it would and then the floodwaters would recede wherever that like cuz i mean you're talking about everything would shift the oceans would shift and everything would sort of recede back and then we would yeah. proceed back to the original context. A little bit different because, you know, with chaos, yeah. there's there's always some difference. But, uh, but What's that uh, like for a dude part? in the plains? I'm sorry? What's that whole experience like for a fellow in the plains? You know, I, I, I've looked at this, tried to say, what would be, where, where would you locate to avoid this? If these, LOV, these low velocity provinces that are underneath the... Uh, in the mantle, but uh, that are sloughed off of the core, if you will, if they happen in the same locations most of the time, then the same thing's going to repeat itself very similar to the context of this event that we're looking at on the screen here. Um, I think you're going to, you know, ideally you would have to be above 2,200 feet. In fact, if you read Herodotus, when when, uh, Darius attempted to build one of his towers, he couldn't get anybody to come down out of the mountains of Susa because they were scared another flood was going to happen. They refused to come down into the Babylonian wow. plain and build the 
build the Tower of Babel, for instance, because they were scared another flood was going to come and they wanted to be above 2,200 feet in elevation. Wow. So I think that's what we're looking at here. They, there was some wisdom to that mentality, even though it's, you know, of course, myth partly myth mythological or, yeah. or third hand. I mean, I got that also, covered at least. I'm higher than that. Yeah, yeah. That's good. <laughs> we also had a guy on. I mean, re really fascinating about uh, the pole shift. Uh, Douglas Voigt, uh, Douglas Vote from uh, the Diehold Foundation, and and he says the you know the the government. And I feel like I've already told you this in our other show, but. I don't know why, but um, the government, you know, acknowledged his his research and uh, it started to include disaster relief or actually for the for the destruction of mankind in their bill forty four eighty eight, I think it was. And he says that it's because of a, a solar micronova that's happened in a cyclical. It's it doesn't even match half the great year. It's like just over twelve thousand twelve thousand forty six or something like that. But I mean, it made me think. It made me think of that because if the magnetic, you know, if the magnetic field is is uh, shifting and changing, um, you know, that could open up other influences, right, to yes. affect in in uh, to affect the Earth. I, I think it absolutely would. It would give some sun. discipline to our our return state or the rebound. Uh, but other than that, uh, you know, there's going to be some chaotic permanent effects that would be involved here. So the the other thing I want to ask you about back to sort of Egypt specifically is, is there any, so you think this is, uh, is a still a fairly recent thing. Like the, the pyramids would have, as far as like the, I guess what I'm looking for is some correlation here with other theories that look at advanced civilization pre younger Dryas. Like it, it seems to be, that seems to be where the research is headed. Does your yeah. does your does your thing fit into that, or are you saying that the pyramids still might have been built uh, in the early dynasties? I, I leave open. I, I I preamble this article with the the, the 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 statement that I operate under a dilemma. I I think there is reasonable evidence that uh, humans. Well, there's certainly evidence that humans built the uh, the pyramids. That that I don't think there's any doubt on that. And it's certainly not out of the context of the fourth dynasty. I don't have a problem with that. And that's and I, the reason I say this is, is, one, because it is sincere. That is the conjecture of an engineer who's built over 100 buildings, very large structures himself. Uh, but as well, to, to avoid these ridiculous notions that if you disagree with archaeology, you're an alien theorist, theorist or racist. Those are the most ridiculous red herrings I've ever heard. In fact, the People who state that should be permanently barred from commenting on this topic altogether because they're not sincere. They have nothing but propaganda in their mind. And I, I you know, I get, I get when I get in discussions, official discussions with archaeologists, and the few times I do, I get rather upset when they start that rhetorical shtick. Yeah, because that's not nobody, and, and most of the. Most of us, let's just say, as far as I know, aren't really saying that kind of stuff. I mean, I know yeah, the whole correct. ancient aliens thing didn't help when George Giorgio Sukulos is calling everything, you know, it was the aliens. I mean, that I mean, I guess there is probably quite a group that sort of goes down that thing. But I mean, we're just thinking of, you know, what what I'd like to talk about is the the erosion that we've seen in the Karnak temple, the one that Darren talked about, like the, that was filled with 30, 40. I mean, that was covered up by 30, 40 feet of sand as well. I mean, when you mm. think back and they dug that whole, that whole temple out, which I mean, who knows how, I don't know if they say how long that was, but I mean, 
if if you're if this flood that you're talking about, I mean, that would leave all kinds of deposits, like lots and lots of deposits. I mean, I don't know how how high, but maybe. And then then we've seen the the erosion of these huge granite granite blocks on the in the Karnak Temple, very very eroded. Like it must have taken a very very long time. And they're all they're, that was the most eroded shit we've seen in all of Egypt. Wow. Yeah, I've got to go and, back and see that. Wow. And there's and there's some granite erosion. And this is where it gets into the the pre-dynastic theories because on the in the in the Giza plateau, there's all these temples as well. And they're and the they're trying to say that, oh, this this is all eroded sort of the same, or it's the same thing that built in whatever dynasty. But when you look at the 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 bottom granite works, that's it's 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 eroded quite a bit more than than you would think. For the for the upper or the the newer the newer placed blocks and stuff. Interesting. And then Interesting. and then and then the other part of that, I'm trying to throw it all in here at once to you, but and you can go where you want with it. But is the the small pyramid that has granite casing stones on it still? And I wonder if you've seen because I'll show you some pictures here too, just to to get your opinion on it, if you've seen if, that some of them are finished and some of them are left unfinished. And and just like to me, it says that there's these different sort of timelines that 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 are thrown in. Like what? It, so 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 was the you know what happened? Why was the did the flood affect the, the small pyramid uh, the same, or was it built after the flood? Because it still has casing stones on the bottom of it, and there's yeah. some of them, and it's unfinished. It's not a finished product. Yeah. Well, I think there's, we're obviously going to find, I think there are 110 different pyramids in Egypt. In fact, one that when I attended a lecture in Egypt, uh, there was one period pyramid that was as large as Khufu that was three miles north of Giza that was assembled and then disassembled. <laughs> so, right. Right. I mean, it's one thing to build a pyramid. It's another thing to take it away. I mean, who has the economic viability to keep a workforce in yeah. check and motivated to remove a pyramid. Yeah. You know, building a pyramid, you obviously got a goal in mind there and everybody can celebrate the completion of each layer, you know, or the, or the finished product and all those things. And it's symbolic and unifying in its nature. But who's able to motivate an army to remove a pyramid? That's what I want to know. Yeah. But anyway, there's 110 pyramids, I believe, in this, in the Egypt, Egypt whole Egyptian inventory. Many or most are built, you know, after the after Khufu and Khafre. So we're going we're gonna to have all contexts. You know, it's like yeah. like nations with COVID. We're finding examples of everything, you know, with various nations. I'm not so, sure, Darren, Darren. Does I think that the does Ben think uh, and and those guys think that the 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 red and the step pyramids were built prior to the big ones, or I'm not sure. I think I think he thinks they're all in the same era. They're all the old before the older, the older before the pre-dynastic stuff. Yeah, That's yeah. all pre-dynastic. And I mean, I before we pop into the pictures, which we're going to do in a second here, which is going to open up a couple different rabbit holes. Yeah. Um, before we jump into that, I want to ask before what what do you think they were for? Because you were in a bunch of them, they're all sort of the same. They all got that weird kind of smell to them, which ain't. Yeah. They blame it on bat piss or bat shit. But I went into a bunch of tombs that were full of bats, and none of them smelled like that. And the Serapium yeah. was full of bats, and it didn't smell like that. It was only the pyramids that all smelled like that. Well, um, if they were indeed built hundred years or or sixty years apart, Khufu and Khafre were father and son. 
you know, at most they were built 60 years apart. Why didn't they use a common engineering plan? Because you've got a, with Khufu, you've got a, on the bottom right in this image here, you've got a tried and true set of uh, practice engineering techniques, best practices. And then you immediately go and do something completely different for Khafre, who would have already had builders who knew the context of how right. to build the grand right. gallery, how to right. build the relieving chambers, how to build the king's chamber and the air shafts, how to build the queen's chamber, how to build the subterranean chamber, the interconnecting shafts, the, the north-south air shafts, why they completed one but terminated early, the other set. All that intellectual property, that resident knowledge still existed. Why didn't they reuse it in Khafre? I mean, it could have saved them 20% resources or something. Yeah. Like <laughs> I, I don't think the same people built the two pyramids, although they're both built by humans. But second thing is, when you go through the king's chamber and the queen's chamber and the uh, and not the subterranean chamber per se, and you look at the stonework that is that makes up those chambers, the stonework there is of an extraordinarily hard um, uh, uh, marbleized, if you will. I'm probably using the wrong term, but maybe a mosaic, if you will, limestone, and it is precisely polished. You can't, you know, as they say, you can't get a sheet of paper in between the two in theory. And acoustically. Beautifully. And they're 40 to 80 ton stones and they are beautifully set together. The workmanship on those stones is of a completely different context than the workmanship on the stones that comprise the structure of the pyramid itself. In other words, it's almost as if they didn't want something to be taken away. So oh. they piled up a bunch of stones on top of wow, it. Wow, so that's super interesting. Taken away. I wonder if you could do, it's too bad you couldn't do like a, you know, a, a 3D schematic of that part, you know, yes, without the, correct. without the whole pyramid itself. To show the, the uh, sepulcher or whatever it is that was, yeah. that was the original structure that was put under the stones. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. Because, yeah, because uh, somebody was talking about the, the one in the king, the lintel in the king's chamber even, I mean, is massive, right? It oh, goes yeah. right, over, right over the door. Absolutely. Yeah. And you pop your head up in that little space right before you get in the king's chamber, and it's like perfectly harmonic. Perfectly, oh, like you, you thought of the uh, the uh, the drop the three drop stones at the entranceway to the king's chamber. Like yeah, if you pop up stones, I believe. It, it, yeah, if you pop up in between them and you just go like, oh, the whole oh, yeah. thing just yes. start to ring, and it's like, yes. everyone's like, well, Absolutely. it must have been made for ceremonies, this and that. And I'm like, I bet if you walk down, like, you know, if you jump in a pressure vessel. A big enough pressure vessel that maybe you got some curves in it and start doing that it'll do the same sort of thing machines do the same sort of thing i think of the with all the rocks it's like an old it's like a different way of making a pressure vessel without rolling titanium and doing this and doing that and from the inside there's even some evidence that there might have been some pressures going on in there there's i think one of them was cracked well there, there's no doubt there's an artisan and skill that is differentiated between the structure that makes up the king chamber itself and even the relieving, what are called the relieving chambers above the king's chamber. The relieving chambers look like they were done by a five-year-old Neanderthal. The, the actual stones in the king's chamber look like they were done by a sophisticated race of, uh, of individuals, uh, certainly. Not, not with maybe high technology per se, because there are inventive ways to polish, you know, Mo's eight stone. Uh, but they put a lot of time into those stones, that being said, to get the, that seamless, very precise fitting of a 40 to 80 ton block. 
the amount of work content that goes into that is extraordinary. And to put it in, to invest it in something that no one's ever going to see, well, the people who built the understructure, the King's Chamber, had a completely different ethic about the work investment than did the people who built the the relie relieving chambers. They completely well, this, different ethic. This kind of gets into how easy it seems to be for them to finish these off. So if you can see my, I don't know if you can see my cursor here, but around this entrance there, they, these blocks here, this is the, the granite. These are granite casing stones still yeah. on the small period. Yeah, those so, are red granite, and, yeah. And these yeah. have been, this has been finished here. And this Correct. is not, this is the pillowy blocks has not been finished. And there's another angle. And there's a close-up of the pillowy blocks. But then look at look at the look at the radius. Like somebody's flattened this out with some kind of, you know, some kind of means that's left like 12 to 18 inch uh yeah. you know radius there. And this is happened, this happens all through all through Egypt, um, in different yeah. spots. Like, look at that. Yeah. You know, they've and then not to say that this is in a polished state yet, but they that could be the the process prior to polishing. Yeah, this um, is the north face of Linkare, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, that one, that one has always perplexed me. Um, there are a lot of those, uh, those what, what they call them, the bulbous points that that exist in the uh, the yeah. Inca, uh, stone depositions as well. Yeah. It's interesting. The Incas used the same technique as was used on this north face of Linkare. And this is the back. This is, I guess, 180 degrees around. I think from where we just showed you. And then there's yep. this other big. Uh, is this this here is the top of the probably the highest casing stone that's left on that's the other side of the small pyramid, gotcha. and look at look at how look at the flatness there that's 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 on there with the with the they've left that pillowy thing on there, but yet another stone would have been on top of this uh, another casing stone. So I mean, it seemed like they must have had an easy way to look at that. Yeah, you know, they must have had an easy way to to make these flat, whether it was inside or outside. Well, there's certainly, there are two principles of engineering when you build a facility and it's called FL and FF. And it has to do with the measure of the tolerance of flatness and the measure of the tolerance of levelness. There's definitely FL and FF uh, disciplining to the vertical dimension of the pyramids. Uh, that was absolutely paramount. Now in the horizontal dimension, the the foreman or the the field superintendent, you know, I'm using modern anachronistic terms to describe the construction of the pyramid, they they used what's called fieldstone placement. And that simply means they used whatever arrived in the supply chain at that time and fitted the appropriate stone in its place. And so they were undisciplined in the horizontal dimension, but they were very FL and FF dimension in the vertical dimension. So seeing a very flat stone in that in that portrayal that you just showed at Macari, that's that's not surprising. That that would have been of utmost importance to the field superintendent. And then but what it about really seems like they were just building it. They weren't too worried about it because they were going to have another crew come in later and just scrape that shit away. Mm. And we'll go are, back to that other picture for a second, Graham. Which one? Uh, this so one? That, yeah, I have another yeah. picture of that where you can sort of see it in both directions. Yeah, there you go. But these ones here, you can definitely see. So that's leave it right there. Leave it right there. So on this one, in my opinion, if you look, you can see where they've got one tool that's going up and down to flatten these things out. And then another one that's going going horizontally that over closer to the middle of the photo there. It's almost like it's maybe a giant roller or not a giant roller, but a giant, almost like a giant. Uh, yeah. Like a giant sander, you know, like a 
rolling rotating sander or That's something like that in two different this, directions. This is Makatum limestone. That the, the, uh, this is, uh, I think this is granite again. Um, okay, okay. It, yeah, this it, is the Assyrian, I think. This right? is the Assyrian temple, which is interesting okay, because gotcha. it's 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 got that huge temple built outside of it, but this is offset. The older this is like an older part of it that seems to be offset from the original one. So it's almost yeah. like this they bumped into this when they were making the other one, or it almost seems like this was this was an older, older thing. But again, it's unfinished because they were scraping, they were cleaning all that that Correct. they were cleaning all that off. And or, or scraping stopped. it, and then they just it just never like that's where they had the scaffold set or something like that. And then they just, you know, they just didn't finish. Interesting. The amount of work content that has to be invested in the placement and facing of stones in this, in this way means that labor that either they had some type of, of uh, tool that they used or labor was not a precious resource. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. we don't, we rarely have context in which labor is not a precious resource. In an but I mean, but, but this kind of gives you, I mean, I don't think it's fair to say this took a, you know, oh, labor was an easy resource and they were easily scooping this stuff out or yeah. sorry that they weren't easily right. scooping it out. It, it had to be easy to make this. It seems to be like a minimum two foot diameter, a minimum two foot clearance they needed to do these Correct. scoop marks. And you yeah, so that's, yeah. that's the, uh, this is the, uh, what's it called, right, Graham? It's, that's yeah, down the, there. Big, uh, the big obelisk. Yeah, the big yeah, obelisk. Yeah. Yeah. This one's a great example of that scooping principle yeah. that you're outlining there. Yeah. And understand that for every person doing that scooping, scraping, there are two, three, four people supporting that process back into society. So yeah. whatever you're investing to construct that pyramid, multiply it by four or five to yeah. get the actual labor and human resource that is needed to affect that that uh, pyramid or that structure. Yeah. So you you've got to have a nation that is that has uh, what would you call it not recreational time but sufficient overhead time to fund a million or a million eight extra people with nothing to do. So <laughs> that's a pretty extraordinary context in history. Yeah. And then, of course, this one, they go right down and around. It goes right down and around, it seems to be. Like, it comes all the yeah. way down and then around. And, like, like they just scoop this whole thing out prior to, like, and, Correct. again, this is unfinished. They didn't finish taking this out. There's a bunch of these unfinished megalithic works all over all over the place. Yeah. Interesting. And one of the things that I point out in the article is if you build this, if you build it, they will come. Well, if you bring them and you build it, what you've got is the potential for a million very unhappy people. And that's a very dangerous thing to a pharaoh is to have a million unhappy people. That's that can turn into an opposing army very quickly. So sorry, sorry, while we're doing while we're doing this, I just want to finish off this because I've got something else here that uh it 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 just it just seems to me like there's something going on with the granite work. So there's not only the scoop marks and the vases that we talked about that Ben's acknowledging that the the accuracy of these vases is unbelievable. So within a, within a couple thou that the, their manufacturing is following all these principles that he didn't even talk about on Robin yet, Rogan yet, but it's following a transversal a radial transversal transversal pattern. So the way that the curve is made is based on like a, a bunch of sacred like phi and uh and the sacred uh ratio that it'd be the it, uh, golden ratio the golden yeah. ratio but it's but it's built into the like an algorithm of how it's yep. done like yep. it, 
you know, something we would never do on the design. And then on this Elephantine Island here, there's all these granite boxes as well that are very accurately made. Like, look, yes. these are, yes. these are ink. They don't even have an answer for when these were made. So like the hypothesis of sort of the people we've been with recently are, is this was before the dynasties. Like this stuff is, they, they stumbled, the early Egyptians stumbled across these, these granite works. I mean, look at how big this thing is and how exact it's made. You know? Yes. I really just think that's that's something that needs to be explored and explained a little bit better. Like, and there's a black granite one, a red granite one, and another granite one. There's three different types of these, like, kind of remnants of boxes or boxes. And this has got these these machine marks, it looks like, on there. And these, yeah, weren't, these weren't modern modern creations. In fact, this was on Rogan, this gradation coming around oh, the curve here. Yeah. Is, yeah, uh, is is done by a machine. It could be a human-operated machine, but it's a machine nonetheless. Yeah, and then if you yeah. just if I go back to the beginning here, where they come, they're in the temples. These these are like I believe these are the same boxes that are in the temple. That this is in one of the temples across from Elephantine Island or somewhere. Interesting. Yeah, where they actually have them, like it, and they they seem to Ed be food. reverence these. Yeah, Temple of Edfu, and they reverence these, and they they found these this some story about them finding these and building the temples around them. So again, it's just a little bit more evidence that something's not what it seems. And that there's these precise yeah. granite works that go back further than we think. Yeah. And the nubs, like you mentioned, we see those nubs all over the world, all over the world. Absolutely. It's Common like technology. It's like if you looked now around the world, you'd see a bunch of different examples of common technologies that we're using to build. You know, I, we went to, well, some of the stuff they're doing in Egypt's a little bit different. I'm not going to lie. But when we went through the UK, you know, you see them doing construction. It looks pretty similar to what I'm doing here. And uh, you can see those sort of common things. And you see the same thing in uh, Puma Punku. Um, you know, there's a bunch of different examples. So, the, you know, the interesting thing about Puma Punku and all that stuff down in South America is it's all at high altitude as well. Yeah. And that uh, is disadvantageous to an army of people <laughs> from experience. <laughs> so do you, do you want to show that um, just that thing while you're talking about humans doing it and stuff? Uh, and while you've got it in your, in your report here as well is the, the mechanism of the, them using the water sure. to lift stones and stuff like that. And yeah, this and is things. another of those instances is why did, why has nobody come up with this to date? Well, the reason is because the industry and it is an industry because they make money off of this. They don't want competing ideas. They they want to prop up their stooge-posed boxer and bring in a bunch of weak or ridiculous alternatives to let them fight it against so that they can keep themselves in power and their idea in prominence. And that's why these ideas, which are very simple to develop by an experienced person, uh, are just now showing up because we finally got enough courage and communication to get these ideas out there in the market. But basically, I call this the Sekamu machine. It simply means Sekam means power, but it's the broader definition of power, more than just power in the engineering context. It also means spiritual power. Mu is water. Uh, so this is the power of water machine, but this is more than just water. It's heavily saline water. So it's 30, 35 percent heavier than typical water and maybe even some silt in it. You could make it a, maybe a touch heavier, but by and large, what this machine allows this, this erstwhile or, or, or you know, proposed Egyptian to do here 
is lift a 2.5 ton stone with a minimum number of people. Again, under the philosophy that, yes, I can build anything with an army, but I've got to feed and support that army. I've got to lose that army from my society. In other words, I can't defend my nation. I can't police it. I can't supply chain goods to my people. I can't get the farms run. I can't get the you know shepherds shepherding done. I can't get food production done. But I am building this pyramid. That's not real smart as a society. You've got to build the pyramid off the fat of society. And if you employ too many people, those people, when they're unhappy, can become an army very fast. In fact, they're probably a nice, physically fit and angry army, too. So I think they would have gone with a minimization of labor or work content, as I call it, as a professional engineer. Um, they would have used tools that minimize that work content, the direct labor. And this Sekamu machine does it very elegantly. You you use the disc of Sabu, of Prince Sabu, which is an impeller pump. If you look at it, you've ever built, rebuilt impellers uh, or pumps that, that have impellers like a Jabsco pump. You know what you're looking at here, that this is an, it's a soft impeller. It doesn't, it doesn't propel 100% of a block of water. It puts pressure on the water so that it takes an exit pipe, but it doesn't 100% uh, compel that water down that pathway. It's a soft impeller. That impeller could lift the water necessary to get up in these barrels on the high end of the second moon machine. And then through four fourfold purchases, which is a compound uh, block and tackle assembly, three Egyptians could basically jump down these five levels of pyramid stones and lift that one stone up one level. And, and they would become a very productive process at this of lifting the stones. And we do know that the vertical component of the assembly of the pyramid is the challenging part. That's what everybody conjectures ramps about is because the vertical part is the difficult part. Moving these stones horizontally, there are a number of ways that that can be done, which are you know easily contrived and done. So if we have extremely flat and level surfaces, as we talked about here earlier, the FL and the FF, you know, leveling of the of the levels, then you'd be able to roll these stones horizontally fairly, fairly easily and drop them into position. It's the could vertical that be, that requires the army. Could that be like, um, can that be now uh, upsized to do the like 80 ton stones in the king's chamber and stuff like that? I In, in theory, yes. However, um, the the complexity, and I tried to, to think of how this second moon machine would apply to an 80 ton stone. Yeah, there's got to be a limit to the weight. Yeah. There's a limit here. Um, the, there's a complexity of the 80 ton stone that I can't solve with this, just this context. So I don't know. The answer is I don't know. Because even the rigging and stuff starts to get weird. Yeah, absolutely. But, but that comes back to the interesting theory you mentioned about the inside of the pyramid maybe exactly. being done some other time. And they, this is a way to cover, you know, cover everything up in a way. Skill and refining of those stones in the king's chamber is completely different than skill used to create the stones in the exterior and the casing. Right. It could also What's, be that the loft technologies are completely different as well. Yeah. What's the biggest yeah. one? The biggest one, I think, is Baalbek, right? That's yeah, Baalbek is the pregnant lady pregnant, pregnant lady stone. Yeah, forget how heavy it is. I think it's three hundred tons. I want to three hundred tons. Well, yeah. no, no, there's some that are. Well, I mean, Ben is saying there's some at a uh, thousand tons. I mean, there's the big granite statue that's. that's oh, that's right. Those statues. You know, there's yeah, there's a couple right. other. Gotcha. That are in one piece, but I mean, he 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 says that anything over three hundred tons, and you're basically running into completely different problems like material. Yeah. 
moving materials won't do it. Uh, like there's, you know, it's one thing going to up to 80 or a hundred, but it's another Correct. thing going over 300, you know? Yeah. You're, you're not going to be able to place wooden logs on that and roll it yeah. across a flat surface. It's just going to turn it into, you know, powder. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's right. Those statues are one piece. Those are a thousand yeah. tons. How, how heavy would the obelisk would have been a thousand tons, I think, or something. Yeah. Like I think that. there was a few items. There's three or four items. I think Teddy knows, of. but we what, had to what, watch the video where they just put the, the thousand ton obelisk on a, on a couple little boats and floated it down the Nile. You've been on a boat. I mean, how hard is it to float a thousand tons? Oh, a thousand tons. Well, water is pretty heavy. As long as you get the displacement of water, um, you know, you've got to take the ship itself, the people, and then the block itself. So you're looking at, let's say, a classic keel boat. You're probably looking at something that's 80 feet long and displacing uh, uh, down to, you know, if you're going to transit the Nile, you're not going to want to displace below seven feet of, of draft. So uh, you're probably looking at a fairly flat and long boat. Yeah. <laughs> it's strong. Strong yeah. as well. I mean, it's got to be it's strong to, to displace that yeah. water, you know, without breaking. So this disc here, this disc of Sabu, that looks like the schist disc, eh, Darren, that we that, that everybody was talking about on our trip? Yes. I don't think, I don't know if they, they thought of it as a propeller, as, a, as an impeller. Yeah, it's this is an impeller. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, they made it out of stone because if they had made it out of metal, they didn't really have a metal. Even if you used iron in a context like this with a pretty heavy, steady pressure and you're rotating it, you know, thousands and thousands of times a day, metal would eventually fatigue and fail. With this Mohs seven or eight stone here, which is what this is made out of, it's a very, very dense and hard uh, sedimentary rock formation. It's Mohs eight, I believe, is what this is. It took them a long time to make this. But once made, it was very durable and very effective. And I think that's why this, this Pharaoh's son buried it in his, in his tomb with him. It was so valuable. That's wow. why he, did it. he wow. didn't want humanity to lose this intellectual property. Right. Interesting. He so, well, he took it with him. He kind of took it with him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he took his secrets to the grave, you know. <laughs> Look what I did. <laughs> yeah, I'll you, motherfucker. <laughs> okay, the the one other thing I think we need to talk about is the red ochre in your in your report too, for sure. Yes. Just just yes. to see if that's a yeah. Uh, I uh, is, is what's his name still saying? He's still saying Khufu, right? Uh, our buddy, the one Zahi Hawass. We had Nah, Zahi. Zahi I mean, Hawass. I, no, you the know, one I'm we like, had on the show, Schellinger. No, not Schellinger. What's his name? The other skeptic, Michael. Oh, Michael Shermer. Michael Shermer. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. He still says Khufu. It's crazy. It blows my mind. Yeah, technologically and society-wise, it's Khufu certainly in context, so that's not a problem. The problem is when you look at these field notes, and these were not done by Weiss, they were done by Weiss's protege the next day after Weiss, Weiss spent time alone in, this, in these chambers. When I saw this, I got angry. I didn't, I, my reaction was anger. This is a goofball with a paintbrush. This is not the marks that quarrymen would put. This is not the marks that builders would put on a stone who are working seriously in a job. They would not do this. This is the marks of a person who's overeducated and over ego with one batch of ochre and a gigantic brush and they're right-handed and they're laying on their side and they had to twist their hand to get around these vertical stones and the perpendicular stones. This is an arrogant goofball with a paintbrush and a fresh batch of red ochre. 
And that's what I saw when I saw these marks. I would have been embarrassed to have somebody publish this if I was a serious archaeologist back then. In addition, he didn't anticipate photography and mass spectroscopy. And that's what we can apply to this red ochre now and determine its dating. However, we've refused to do that. Curious that we have absolutely refused to do something that is so simple. I go to Zahi Awas and say, Zahi, I can fly there with my MS-103. I, can, I will go in and scrape the red ochre and give you a date. <laughs> you know, I will give you a date uh, you know, for this red ochre uh, if you just let me. They won't do these very simple, basic procedures of science, which means they're practicing pseudoscience. But if we look at it here, <laughs> if we take the red ochre that Weiss supposedly encountered upon his lone and sole venture into these relieving chambers, Look at the red ochre. There's no chalking. All paint chalks, and this is paint, even though it's called ochre. It's red iron oxide, but it carries a, a, a vehicle. The red iron oxide is merely the pigment. It's the minority of the constituency of this paint, if you will. The majority is a vehicle, and that's an organic compound that can be dated, and it chalks. All paint chalks. All limestone chalks. This paint has not chalked at all. Compare that to the quote markings, and these are not hieroglyphs, they're not hieratic script at all. These are the engineering marks that existed behind the stone door on the south shaft of the Queen's air chamber. These are engineering marks done in red ochre. And you can see highly disintegrated, highly chalked. All that's left is the actual penetrant, the, the vehicle that actually entered the stone carried a little bit of the iron oxide with it and left these red images here, but that's not actually paint on the surface. That's just red ochre that got into the crystalline the structure stain, of the, the rock. The stain in a way. Yeah. It's a stain. It, well put. Yeah, thank you for the right term there. What you see on the top is a stain. What you see on the bottom is a pretentious painting done by an overeducated buffoon. <laughs> that's just frankly what it is. We base our all our archaeology based on baloney like that. <laughs> I, I hate to be frank on that, but I don't I, I don't like ignorance. I don't like people lying to produce ignorance, especially when it pertains to mankind's origins and background. Something's being protected and I want to know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so well, hopefully we'll find out uh, soon enough. I mean, I'm not going to hold my breath, but we'll keep trying. We'll keep trying. I'm, I need to yeah. go back to Egypt in a couple of years. I want to go down to South America and really take a look at that stuff. And, uh, you know, see what it, it going there really sums it up that it's nuts. It's fucking nuts what these guys were up to. They had yeah, to have, love, it was either super easy or super important. Yes. Yeah. I'd, yeah. I'd love, I'd love to get your opinion on the vases at some point. Like keep an eye on that with Ben and, uh, they're, they're doing more and more scans and more and more processes on them and, uh, to see what you think about the, uh, excellent the, the fabrication of these. Yeah. It's, it's really, really becoming interesting. Well, just like COVID, the amateurs are going to do an end run on the professionals and just embarrass the hell out of them. That's oh yeah, that well, that's that's what's yeah yeah. Christopher Dunn, you know Chris uh, Christopher Dunn who wrote that Giza Power Plant book. Yes, he's he's in correct. He's in, in there too and uh, looking at the stuff. So pretty interesting. Excellent. Well, ethical skeptic, this has been fantastic. Again, big thanks for coming on the show. Where can people find all your stuff? 
at theethicalskeptic.com is my main uh, blog site website. And then, of course, Ethical Skeptic on X or Twitter. And you're on Substack too, right? And on Substack, absolutely. Yeah. And then um, what are you coming up? What are you working on these days? I am uh, I'm working off this this uh, continuing pattern of thought here. This is the what is Watson and Crick called the standard codex. Um, this I, it took me 10 years to map this out by looking at the uh, nucleic the nucleon progression, excuse me, of uh, amino acids and matching them up to the the logical 64 logical slots of the DNA codon, which is a three letter word in DNA. And what I find here is not intelligent design or creation, but certainly not stochastic randomness. What I find here is intent. This is an engineer's uh, index, and it is the basis of all DNA life that we're familiar with. It's a one and or 3.4 times uh, 10 to the one and 3.4 times 10 to the 27th possibility in its existence. And most people say, well, with evolution, given enough time, anything can happen. This didn't evolve. You have to have this before you have evolution. So this could not have evolved. This is unprecedentable complexity. It does not prove creation or intelligent design. However, it does prove intent without a doubt. So this is where I'm, I'm launching from the intent basis of the standard codex of DNA. Wow. Intent, like, intent, like, I mean, how does that not point to creation or intelligent <laughs> design? I mean, yeah. I, it's like to me, it's it's one of the two again. It's either like the, it's it's like the. Uh, if I had to pick one, I'd say simulation, which simulation. is real intelligent design. This is setting up the parameters of a system and then letting the system operate inside those parameters. That's intent. Whereas intelligent design, you're manipulating with the mechanisms all through the progression of the system and. I, I'm more of an evolutionist in that regard. I think science has done its job with evolution. I really appreciate the uh, the depth of the the uh, epistemology there, the inferences drawn. So I'm an evolutionist. Okay, okay. So how about intelligence start? This code was done by an intelligence four point at least four point four billion years ago. The uh, Moore's law, as we analyze the complexity of this code and project back in time. Moore's law states that this code was created about 9 billion years ago. Nice. So that's like the code of life as we know it. It is. This would be the standard code, but it, it would be our standard code. So here's the thing. This acts like a little crypto codex that if you alter the dots on this screen inside someone's standard code, number one, you can identify them. It's a barcode. You can identify them quickly separately from us as a DNA-based life. And number two, they could never reproduce with us because there would be no common language between the uh, the uh, nucleons of the uh, of the amino acids. So you could never create it, create a living creature. So it's an interesting little codex. It's like if you launch DNA with this codex in here, you both earmark and protect the empire that you deploy this DNA into. It's a method of conquest. So in that regard, it does bear intelligent intent. However, that being said, beyond that point, I'm an evolutionist. I just, I'm just not an abiogenesist. So, <laughs> well, evolution. I mean, we can see things evolve in our time, in our in real time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. When, when are you going to be um, 
sort of finishing off this whole project analysis or whatever Ooh, it is we're doing. It took me 10 years to get to this. <laughs> so this, this one's a longer labor of love. <laughs> awesome. Do you allow for any hybridization inside your evolution? Well, I, I allow for tampering and uh, that, that introduces the, the other end of this. If we take a look at the human accelerated regions of our genome, they also are not the product of evolution. And that bothers me greatly. I don't like that answer. It's not what I expected to see. It's not what I wanted to see. Unfortunately, on the other end of evolution, when it comes to humanity, somebody monkeyed with the monkeys. Well, it <laughs> seems like it was a pig. Yeah. 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 There's pig and cow DNA in there, too. Uh, that one that one stumps me, but uh, that's <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> that's another show for another day. That's another that's show perfect. altogether. Thanks Absolutely. for coming back, and uh, we hope you have a great 2024. Darren, Graham, thank you for having me back, and you as well. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, gents. And that was a chat with the ethical skeptic. What'd you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love it. I want to oh, go back to Egypt. Hanger. Yeah. Dude, I was actually, because uh, I was watching, uh, I'm friends with Cliff Dunning on from Earth Ancients on Facebook. Yeah. And he's getting ready to go back to, and uh, I'm friends with Yuf Yusuf on Facebook, and he's posting pictures because he's got a group going out right now, and Ben talking about going back, and I'm like, ooh, I want to go. I think I'm not not this year. I don't think if South America goes next year, I'd like to do that, but I think maybe 2026, Egypt could be in the cards again. Yeah, so yeah. Might be time to go check yeah. out some of that stuff again with. Knowing what I'm getting into, so it's not quite so overwhelming. Yeah. Well, my kids are a little older, so I yeah. can stay in touch with them directly. Yeah. Yeah. And I I'd love to out. get his his take on the Malka Bendel stuff too, you know, this you know, but I, I didn't want to like throw too many curveballs at him, but I'd love to know what he thinks about all that. Great chat. And the yeah, vases. And the vases. Yeah. I, I just think that the vases and what he, and maybe what he's, what he's doing fits, will fit into all this, but I think he still thinks it's like in the, in the, he's, he's got room for it to be in the regular time. Someone timeline. sent in that they think the vases, vases are capacitors. Yeah. Ancient yeah. stone capacitors. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm thinking. We should Something. have, uh, what's his name on the show you were talking about? Chris Dunn? Chris Dunning? Is he hard to get a hold of? I'm sure Ben would help with that. Ooh, we should have the Who Built the Moon guy on, too. Let me see if I can track him down. Big thanks to Ethical Skeptic for coming on the show. Big thanks to you guys for listening. Even bigger thanks, guys, if you're liking the show, if you're getting some value from the show. Uh, you know, it takes us a lot of work, time, effort to get this show out there uh, for 10 years now. If you're getting some value from the show, you want to send some value back our way, we would appreciate it and it would help us pay the bills. It's getting cold. Heat gets expensive with the carbon tax. America.ca slash support. Sign up for a monthly or make a one-time donation. If you enjoy this episode, send us a few bucks. Let us know. If not, let us know that too. Check out GrammericaOutlaw.ca. We had another chat with the ethical skeptic about COVID and all, uh, all kinds oh, of stuff. Like that. that was unbelievable. unbelievable. You guys want to check that out. AdultBrain.ca. We just had a couple new audio books come out. Check that out. There's 105 or 110 audio books in that podcast feed. Free books are changing uh, every month or so, so you can get, you know, there's hundreds of hours of entertainment there right now. Bing, just go free. Adultbrain.ca, contact at thecabin.com for the trips that we were talking about. Uh, of course, if you guys want to do 
want to sneak in on that Egypt trip. There is a few spots left for the one in February, I heard, um, from some last-minute cancellations. So you could email, or not email, head over to unchartedx.com if that's something you're interested in. Other than that, we love you guys. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Silver Steel